episode, I have one of my most influential mentors that has been in my life for just under two years and has seriously affected, inspired um, my entire journey. And I couldn't be more privileged to have the opportunity to speak with her today about all things energy work, shamanism, healing, psychedelic assisted therapy, uh, life, and how we get from one thing to the next, how we work through our own experiences to um, hold people in theirs and to trust ourselves along the way. So my guest today is Christina Allen. I hope you enjoy this one. Welcome, Christina. Thank you, Livia. It's my honor. Yeah, I um, I think the best place to start is how would you introduce yourself at a cocktail party? <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> it would completely depend on the person that came up to me because I have a lot of different hats I can wear, and I sort of size up the person and see which hat they will be able to deal with. I come from a science background, so I can wear a science hat, but I have for the last 30 years been in the metaphysical world. I'm doing healing work, and I do shamanic healing. Mm. I find it a little awkward to say I'm a shaman because it's such a loaded word, but the healing that I do does come from shamanic traditions and uses shamanic principles, so... Well, if if there's anyone that is a shaman, it is you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's an honor. It's the truth. How did you get into all of this? Because, you know, I know a little bit about your story, and I think it's pretty incredible. There's some parallels where my background in, in yoga and stuff, and I think it's worth discussing. So how did you get here? Um, there's a kind of two parallel tracks. The first part is I had early childhood trauma, even birth trauma, and undiagnosed Nobody knew, no one really addressed it, and so I was just navigating that with whatever tools I had the best I could, and it was hard. And then when I was in high school, it, I was in California, Northern California in the 70s, and there were a lot of psychedelics, Grateful Dead shows, all this kind of stuff, and the Carlos Castaneda books were big back then. And so I kind of just jumped in in like my junior year of high school into all of that, and it really just opened my mind, and I was like, I want to be a shaman. I want to be like Carlos Castaneda. I want to go into the into the jungles of Mexico and take psychedelics and, you know, like heal people. And, you know, you go through junior year of high school and you go through senior year of high school and then you got to go to college and um, er, there's nothing like that on the, um, on, the, on the curriculum. So I punted, you know, I took lots of different things that were kind of circling it. I took psychology and I'm like, hmm. I decided to be a creative writing major for a little while. I I dropped out of school for a little while because of the trauma, mm. because I got overwhelmed and I didn't I couldn't just keep up. Because in literature, you have to read a ton of books all the time, and you're taking three of these classes at the same time. And I was reading all these depressive, suicidal authors, so I just kind of tripped my switch. And so when I came back, I started into science and physics. Just blew my blew my you know my circuits up and I thought I can do this and it's 
in parallel with all my psychedelic stuff. It's in parallel with all my Eastern religion kind of interests. And I thought, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. So I got that degree. And then I was like, oh, I don't really want to be a physicist. That's not my thing. I like the ideas. I like the concepts. I like the material. So I went to graduate school, studied neuroscience, went into a PhD program. But again, I wasn't really signing up to be in the lab, cutting up rat heads, monitoring brain slices, looking at this the circuitry of the brain. I had a more a metaphysical kind of reason for going into it. I, and I, all this time I'd been calling in a teacher. Can I please have a, sh a shamanic teacher? Not having any idea how to do that back in that day. Even saying call, calling it in, like it was something you prayed for, was something you wished for. Yeah. yeah, yeah, something I was, you know, just putting out to the universe. I really want a shamanic teacher. Mm. I had no idea how to do that, and I certainly, as a young American white girl, wasn't going to go tromping into the jungles of wherever and try and find a teacher. And that seemed to be where they were. So I had no no real way of accessing that. So my two parallel tracks kind of came together at some point when my mom died. And I was like five years into my PhD. And, you know, I was really interested in consciousness. And what I realized was as her body was starting to slip out, I was still very much talking to her. And we were still communicating. And, you know, I would have her blink her eyes if I got it right. And she could. You know, that was all that was left of her. And so I was like, oh, this, we're not in Kansas anymore here. There's a lot more going on than just the brain in terms of consciousness, which is why I went into neuroscience. And so she died. And it sort of psychologically put me in this limbo land, in this nebulous place. And I couldn't quite get out of it for about a year. And at that point, I had been doing a lot of Ashtanga yoga. And so I just took a year off from grad school and started really anchoring into yoga because it brought me back in my body. And this is when I finally realized, oh, I had some trauma. I had, I didn't even, I couldn't have put the name on it at that time. I just wasn't in my body. Were you depressed about the loss of your mother or was just this, just loss? Like, was it the need to come back into your body because it was such a heavy loss or like that emptiness? Mm, good question. No, it was a sort of a spiritual awakening. I went out into that nominal space where all consciousness connects and it was beyond the consciousness of humanity. And I was having trouble getting back into the consciousness of my individual self. I wasn't depressed. I was really spacey. I was really like metaphysically connected, but like not don't, yeah, don't make me sit there and do tedious tasks in the lab all day long. I can't do that. It's just, that just doesn't make sense to me anymore. Mm -hmm. And so yoga is what helped pull me back into my body, ground me more into the physical world again. But the thing that happened when my mom was dying was because I had this history of depression, I was like, I'm, I'll go with you, man. Like, I'm I'm ready, you know, like I'm not super invested in being here. And this big voice came through and said, nope, it's not your time. You have things you have to do. And so then it sort of started my spiritual journey because I couldn't come back and finish my dissertation. I just, I didn't care anymore about how reliable synapses were in the red hippocampus. And it, re it required a lot of tedium and concentration. And yet I was at that point where I was going to have to write it all. And I just couldn't. Because you did find that you had the patience or like even you were too connected to something bigger than yourself and you felt that. 
I was in a really expanded state and to come back and put things in words and technical words and technical logistics just felt really confining. It felt like putting a straitjacket on. And then the voice that you mentioned came through because if anyone's listening and they feel connected to some sort of, you know, a greater source, was it just like a knock on your door? Like, hey, it's not your time yet? Or how did that come through to you? I was lying on her bed and she was at at the point where her body was checked out. She was in a coma, essentially unconscious. And she was drifting. She was alive, but not. And I just curled up behind her head. I got on her hospital bed and curled up behind her head. And I had this visual of going out into space, into the gates of the world, you know, the space between the living and the dead. And we got to like the gates where she could keep going and I could not. And this this is how it came to me. And I'm like, open up the gates. I'm ready, you know. And they they were like, nope, nope, you got to stay here. You got things you got to do. Wow. I'm so glad you stayed here. Me too. (laughs) You have been such a huge impact on my life, but I'm fascinated too. So at that point, you were told to stay here. Then you got into Ashtanga to get back into your body. And then how did that manifest into the rest of... Well, I, I, I went and studied in India. I started my own school, but I still had this trauma that I hadn't resolved. And I couldn't have told you it was trauma. I knew I had one incident when I was 15 that was traumatic, but I didn't know about all the other things. And then I kept asking for the teacher, for the shamanic teacher. And then one day, just by a strange circle of events, I ended up at a lecture um, that Alberto Viola was giving. And he was talking about shamanism, Andean shamanism, and quantum mechanics. And I went, Oh, I get it. I get why I had to do all this pre-work, right? There's a connection here between this kind of shamanism and the Western perspective of energy and understanding the dynamics of energy. Because that's what you're learning in physics is, you know, what are the constituents and what are the rules of the world and in terms of matter and energy? So suddenly it made sense because that's what I wanted to understand is how can I deconstruct matter and reconstruct it? So I studied with him and went through his school. And it was at the end of my training with him that my second big trauma popped. And then I was like, oh, it was a repressed memory. Mm. And I was like, oh, this makes sense. Now I kind of get why my life has been the way it has been. And and the thing that I found was I had never been able to access any of that with therapy or I'd been on antidepressants. I had all kinds of struggles with just maintaining being in the physical world. Mm. That's why I was like, nope, I'm ready to go. So when I went to shaman school, I think it's funny to call it that, and it, we call it like Hogwarts. You I know? was just going to say, it's the school of wizardly <laughs> arts. That's so funny. I was going to say that. Yes. Yeah, it was like that. When I went to shaman school and this popped, then I, then I started to have the actual tools to work with it because the way that he taught shamanic healing was two things. One, he used the Andean tradition as sort of a construct or format. And then he mixed it with breath work. And the combination ends up being sort of the the formula in some way for a lot of different shamanic traditions, but in a sort of a Western delivered way. And the the breath work piece was really important because it gets the person who needs healing out of their everyday mind, out of their resting state mind, out of what we call the default mode network, Mm. the part of our brain that just we go into when we're not when we don't have a task. And with breath work, there's lots of different ways of doing shamanic work. 
but with breath work or psychedelics, there's very different, you know, with dancing, with rattling, with drumming, there's lots of different ways to get to disrupt the default mode network. You can get the person to get out of the narrative that they're clinging to, the story that they're clinging to, the I am this and this is what happened to me story. Because the ego and the narrative are all part of the default network. And and it's just like what it really is, is it's a filter. It's a way of filtering out all the things in the world and just letting in the things that you want to hold on to that support your story. And so you stay wounded as long as you're stuck in that. And so talking about things wasn't working for me. I was still staying in my story for the most part. And you could, you know, you could change the story to some degree, but it's still an intellectual process. Like, okay, well, maybe I'm not really a victim, but I still feel like I am. So, you know, when learning that process, I had to both give and receive the teachings to learn them. And that's when things started to pop for me. And I started to actually finally really heal. Mm. So you had been in talk therapy, you were on antidepressants, you had been going through the the motions of trying to be okay in this physical world. You knew that there was something greater out there for you. And at the same time, you felt wounded in some sense, but you didn't know why. I think that so many people can maybe not relate to the metaphysical stuff, but like this feeling of, you know, never really feeling okay, but just going through the motions of life, um, thinking that they are. And I think that's something so bold to be said about like how trauma plays into everyday life and that it's become such a buzzword, but it's become a buzzword that is no longer shunned like it used to be. I know that personally, this idea of trauma is like, that's not me. Like, I what, what does that mean? Like, I don't have trauma. I'm from blah, blah, blah. And all of these stories too, to also protect ourselves from actually healing. And I think it's interesting to just note the yoga part. Like you said, there, you know, Ashtanga yoga is very rigid. It's like a set sequence you practice every day. In coming back into your body and finding that strength, did you do you think that that was part of you then finding this this metaphysical access because you were strengthening your your actual physicality? Or how do you think that played in? I think it allowed me to bring my metaphysical experience into my physical body. I remember my teacher used to say, because, you you know, you're way out there, you know, like we have to get you in your body. And so I think what it did, it, it helped ground me. I think when you've had trauma, you dissociate. And it's really easy to not be in your body. And so um, in Ashtanga, they go through this, this set of series, and each series is designed to do different things. And you do the first series, and then the second series, and then the third series. I got into the third series. I, I had gotten the third series pretty mastered, and I was working on the fourth. But the third series, the second series was all about working your, your um, nervous system. The first series, I think, is about, I forget what it's about, but it's about working your body, then your nervous system. And then the third series is about your focus, mm-hmm. because that's where all the arm balance are. That's all where all the core stuff is. You have to be able to really focus. And there's all breath work in all of this, right? And so what happened was you're breathing and moving your body at the same time. And there's this click, this clunk that happened for me where I felt an integration of the two. And when that integration happened, I felt more connected to the metaphysical instead of just out there in the space. Like I could draw it in as opposed to being lost outside in it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think, I mean, 
obviously my background too and in my focus on the physicality and strengthening my outer so that I could potentially hold my inner but without knowing that I had trauma either for the majority of my life. I mean, I'm 36. It wasn't until two years ago, literally to this date, it's my two-year anniversary of meeting 5-MeO-DMT, the first plant medicine I've ever experienced, even give me any sight of, of trauma. But neither here nor there, you know, when you say the third series, the fourth series of Ashtanga, for me, it was vinyasa and also boxing. But the boxing, it was the breathwork component of the short, sharp exhale, that kalabati breathing, that fire breath that got me out of my head and into my body. But at the same time, it, it there was an expansiveness with this breath. And similar to yoga, this expansiveness and this lengthened breath that I think took me out of, of the trauma that became every day for me because I, I wasn't, I was functioning like a highly functioning, efficient human being, but without recognizing that I really wasn't functioning at all. I was functioning as like a very small child, you know, emotionally. So I think it's so interesting to speak to your experience in the metaphysical, but that almost the physical was part of the gateway to get there. Yeah, I think you have to ground it. You have to be in this world to, you know, to make the metaphysical functional in a sense, right? You have to be able to pull it through and use it in this world. And one of the interesting things in the Andean tradition is a belief that we're not trying to ascend. We're not trying to get to some higher dimension or heaven or someplace else. We're trying to pull that down and embody it mm. and also bring our unconscious to consciousness. So there's this integration of what we would call the upper world and the lower world in the middle world. And so that to me is the true essence of personal power is to be able to to bring all of that together in one place. And, and even saying that yesterday in, in a yoga class, you know, in the vinyasa series, you know, there's a part that's all about integration. And I never really even knew what that word meant. And now it means so much more, particularly in the healing journey, integrating all of the suppressed memories or whatever it is that you're carrying. And I've noticed in my own journey, as I've gotten farther along my path and deeper into my healing work that I'm finally at this place where I'm integrating. And on my mat, that shows up with me really hugging my muscles into my bones. Mm. Like I've shown up so different just in yoga yesterday, like really grounding my palms into the mat and pulling up into my core and getting my heels down and not just like moving through space, you know? And, you know, it's again, like you speak in this metaphysical, but everything that you do is... It's not tangible, but how you use your work on others in a physical way, it's it's physical. It's from you. Well, yeah, it's not just from me, though. It's from it's for the energy of creation. What's interesting, what I'm thinking about, because you're showing me your hands as you're talking about that, is there's an exchange that happens in your hands, right? That you have these holes these and these portals in your hands. And I remember when I used to do Downward Dog, just feeling like I had this exchange between the earth and my hands and my body and just like pulling up the earth energy and giving her mine and pulling hers up and giving her mine through my hands. So there's this sense of exchange that I didn't even really know. I didn't know about the Andean tradition at that point. This is what we call Aini. This is this flow of the energetic. And we're just the kind of the container that it flows in and out of. And then we can kind of direct it to some degree. And in that, you know, you're studying or you're teaching of Andean shamanism. I've had the privilege of taking a course with you. And as you said, it's really about personal empowerment. It's not this I hate to say woo-woo thing. It's really about like using your tools, acknowledging the strength of what you carry, even if it comes from a wounding or a trauma and using that in your favor to empower yourself to be whole again. 
So you did this whole Ashtanga thing. You went through Alberta's course, and then what happened? Um, I worked for Alberto for several years. I went through his program and then I'm like, oh, I only got the tip of the iceberg here. And so I stayed and worked for him. I was with him for a total of 10 years. I took people to Peru many times and um, it was a it was a beautiful experience. And then after about 10 years, it was just time to go out on my own. And I lived in San Diego at the time and I was having a very difficult time selling shamanism or, you know, just the word has so much, you know, baggage <laughs> And so I had a couple of students in my last class with Alberto. I used to teach for him. I was one of his lead teachers. Say, hey, come check out Austin. You know, Austin might be a really good place for you to you to land. And so I came to Austin and I just got it. I just got this place has heart. It has soul. It's got a spiritual element, but it's also got a very educated element. It's, it's very well-rounded. And, and then it's weird. Mm. <laughs> Super went, weird. Yeah. I was yeah. like, okay, yeah, this place resonates with me. So I came and started my own school here. And at, at first I sort of t- went tangentially off from Alberto's and took it on my own course. But a few years ago, I started studying with Joan Parisi Wilcox and her primary teachers. She actually started with Alberto a long time ago, but her primary teachers were Juan and, and uh, Yvonne Nunez del Prado. And they offer the more authentic, traditional-based teachings in the Andean tradition. And so I learned the difference between Alberto's and the the tradition. And I realized, like, there were some profound differences that made a difference to me. So I started teaching the more traditional version of the medicine. But then also doing healing work. I sort of revised how I do my healing work so it's more— because they're more versatile. The Andean tradition is far more versatile than I learned initially. They know, they they tune energy. And that's, I think, one of the important things in terms of healing is that, especially healing trauma, which is, you know, kind of where we're going is, and this is what the, where the physics comes in. If you're energetically connecting with somebody, you can entrain with them and change their frequency and get them to sort of vibrate at a different frequency. And at that frequency, they can start to melt the trauma from their body. The breathwork will also facilitate that. So I've, I've created this um, healing process that brings the traditional and then yeah, keep the breathwork in there for people with trauma to really help, you know, what I call father freeze. Mm pull all that stuff out. Yeah, which I want to really speak to. But in two words that just keep coming to me are shaman and breathwork. So again, we've, we've, this society now has gone into not, no longer completely shunning trauma. We're welcoming that. We're welcoming this idea of legalizing psychedelics and healing sessions and Reiki and all of these other things. And if you could explain how, what or how a healing session works when somebody is with you, because I've obviously had the incredible honor of working with you through Zoom during COVID. That's how we met. And then obviously in person. But, you know, I I can assume it also might be difficult when you're speaking to breathwork or shaman. Like these are two words that are used and misused, right? And the way that you use them is so different than anyone I've ever experienced. So it's it's almost like we also need to get you a new language. <laughs> I know. Well, that's the problem is we have to communicate with what we have because if I use with you, you're going to go, what the heck is that? <laughs> She's um, really crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. You have to ground it and make it accessible. These are the words we're stuck with. Mm. What is shaman? Is that, that's, that's Yeah. Or, you know, in your healing session, how does it work? You know, you as a shaman, somebody doing breath work, because again, you can get a breath work tape on YouTube, like, you know, Mm -hmm. breathe into your lungs, breathe Mm -hmm. out. Um, 
And I also think that this is kind of a charged question because it's really hard to explain what you do, right? So let's try. All right, let's try. Um, What I do is you come in, you talk to me, you tell me where you're stuck. You might not know the origins of it. In fact, I would guess you wouldn't know the origins of it or you would have fixed it. Um, So there's an unconscious element to it. And so I know that, and you don't necessarily know what it is, but I know that I have a certain skill set that will help you get to the bottom of it. So I spend about half an hour talking to you about what you know about it. And then we change gears, and I put you on the table, and I start to run energy and do breath work at the same time. And I hold a space for you to step into. Not that you necessarily can sense that or know that, but you do know it intuitively. I am holding sort of this this liminal space. You know, it's sort of like taking you into the womb and saying, okay, here is a place where you can let go of everything. You can be safe. We're going to take, you know, what you brought to me, your body, your soul, your emotions, and we're going to rattle it a little bit and see what falls out. I have a skill set of being able to track, so I can often find origins of some of these unconscious things. And when I can take you to that earlier version of yourself, you and your earlier version can reconcile, and you can let go of the emotions that happened there. You can let go of what you've stored in your body about it. And also, we're working at the soul level, which is where shamanic work is technically supposed to, you know, work. It's the energetics of who we are. At the at the very core, we're energetics. So I'm working these three levels at the same time. I'm running energy through you, which is sort of reformatting your soul or your energy field. I'm also running energy through your body, which is allowing it to, um, to relax. You know, if I can match the frozen and then essentially thaw it with the energetics, I can get it to vibrate out and start to become fluid instead of just this thing. And in the way that I can sense that you've had trauma or that you have trauma in terms of your body is I'll start to feel these rumblings Mm -hmm. in your, it's often in your lower back, but it can be lots of places. And I can just sense it and I'll just send energy there. And then the rumblings will start to thaw. They'll start to move out the legs and start to move through the body. But then there's all the emotional content of that that needs to be expressed. So I hold you, you know, and just hold you to make sure you feel safe. And then we're using breath work the whole time. And the breath work works on a few different levels. One, it gives you a way to move through emotions. Most of us are afraid to go into heavy emotions, which is why we avoid it, because it's like a swamp. If I go in there, I might sink. I might never come out. I mean, that's what antidepressants are for, is to keep you buoyant, right? So you don't completely sink into the swamp. And so we never really clear the stuff that's in the swamp with antidepressants. We just like you know, hovercraft over it. <laughs> we just surf on this. Yes. Until they don't work anymore, which is what happened for me, is they just stopped. They just, you know, like, you're going to have to deal with this. Mm. Um, so coming back to that, the breath work, one gives you a way to exhale out all the heavy, you know, I call it your shit shoveler, mm. just whoosh, Get rid of it on the exhale, pull it up from your body, blow it out. But the other thing that it does is it has a neurological aspect to it. If we breathe a certain way, we will start to change your brainwave patterning. And we will start to go from an alpha, beta kind of brainwave state to what's called a theta state. And a theta state is a slight trance state. But what's interesting about the theta state is that it circumvents 
the default mode network, the part of our brain that just keeps telling us the same story over and over again, the resting state consciousness. And so what it does is it opens that up for expansion so that we can reset, reformat, redesign our life, redesign our story, think bigger, feel bigger, not be stuck, not be so afraid. If we've had trauma, we've designed our default mode network around a traumatic story, around a story that the world isn't safe. Mm. And so we will keep replaying that story in our resting state. That's that's what the default mode network does is it makes up a best case scenario evaluation of the world. And it's re, you know, reevaluating all the time and sort of upgrading, but it's like, I know what the world's like. I've got all, I've got it all figured out. I know how to engage it. And so it filters out anything it doesn't need. So it stays safe and stays in its little format, but that keeps you stuck, keeps you stuck and wounding. So when we start to do the breath work, it starts to open you up out of the default mode network. And people will see the ego into a space of more expansiveness where you can make different connections in your brain, connections that you weren't able to make when you were just hovering in your little, you know, predefined world space. And that's where you get that otherworldly feel. That's where you get that sense of expansiveness. That's where you get that sense of possibility. You don't have to be that wounded person. In such a strange way, the parallel that keeps coming to my mind is, you know, creating box and flow and this dance, this, you know, electricity in tandem with music and movement and breath work and every exhale feeling the power of my hand hitting a bag and then creating this space where other people were doing that. It was like, it was also a distraction from my story, but it gave me this personal empowerment. And I remember, you know, leaving class, teaching class, but really leaving boxing in general, it, it made me feel more safe than I did, more empowered than I did. In a way, it opened up this expansiveness, I think, of the cage I had been locked in without even knowing my whole life of being stuck in this story, you know? So it's so incredible that, you know, the way that I found you and, you know, I didn't, I didn't ask to call in a teacher, but I remember, you know, the first time I was in Austin, it was January, 2021. And it was just after my third assisted psychedelic healing session in New York City and the most grotesque and horrible that I had ever experienced. And I remember I was in an Airbnb for 10 days coming to like Secret Shop Austin to see if I wanted to move here. And I remember contacting you. It was in the middle of COVID and you were very, no, I won't do in-person sessions. I only do Zoom. Like I can't, this is not safe. But it was like the first foray into potentially working with you. And I had no idea at that time that you would end up changing the trajectory of my entire life. I, I mean, before we worked in person, and I would do on Zoom with you, like I I would pass out breathing in my apartment on Zoom. And so <laughs> like when people, when do people come to you? At what point? Well, I get all kinds of different kinds of requests, but I think the student, the person that stays with me or the client that stays with me often has some serious things that they're trying to work through. And they start to see that this, there's effect and they want to go deeper and they want to get to the bottom of it. And so it's often people that are really stuck. You know, where I like to work is with people who really need to make shifts and changes and facilitate that for them. I feel like a midwife in the sense that I, I take them from wherever it is that they are, the birth canal of life, and, and take them through this process of finding themselves and then welcome them into the world in a new way. And, you know, there's layers and layers and layers that you can do that, that midwifing many, many times and the person will keep evolving and keep evolving and keep evolving. Yeah, and I love how the way that you work, you know, via energetics and this metaphysical and running energy and through breath work, you know, 
for me, it's just been a lesson in surrender because if I can allow myself to sort of melt into your table, into your space, into your energy, I'm no longer thinking from my thinking mind and I can allow that story to start to unravel. Yes, yes, absolutely. Which has been just uh, profound in every way. And I think I always wonder because I know that so many people come to you and people with all sorts of stories and traumas and whether they know them or not and you're holding that space. How do you maintain your integrity, your boundary around one session after the other and how do you clean it off, you know, as people come to you and then leave? Mm, There's so many questions in there. Yeah, I do take a little time in between each session to just come back to myself. But I think the, the bigger answer to your question is, My job is not to leave with the client. My job is not to merge with the client. My job is to hold space for the client. And so I hold space. I take the client or I help the client meet themselves. And then I'm done. I close the space up in a sense. You know, I I pull them off the table. I get their shoes back on and and give them a big hug. And, you know, and and we, you know, we can reformat a little bit. Um, And then my job with that person is done for the day. And then it's like stepping into a new river. So then the next person comes in and we step into their river. And then I step out of their river. And then the next person comes in and I step into their river. But I can't do that. You know, I can. I only do like three a day because it's a lot of rivers to step into. I think also what, I mean, we didn't mention, but in the actual healing sessions, speaking from experience, you know, we spend a lot of time talking first about what's going on. And as you said, you can often pinpoint the origin or whatever else if it's unknown or if it is known, but really working on that, you know, in that talk therapy too, before you go into the energetic. And I think it's that safety that you create, that sort of, you know, bubble of sorts where there's an ease of just going on. It's not just like, jump on the table. Let's get all these things out of you. It's more like, what's going on? Not sure. What is this? And your discernment is so beautiful. Like in a way, when people ask me, it's not therapy. And I, I've only been in talk therapy a couple times in my life. But talk therapy for me, when I look at my story, I think that I would be in talk therapy my whole life and never, ever be able to uproot any of the traumas that I've been able to uproot via energy, healing work with you, and also with the assistance of psychedelic therapy. That's not to say there's anything wrong with talk therapy, but I just want to be clear of like, this isn't that. And at the same time, it has the component of really of you holding space, but speaking through these things first, right? Yeah, and that is something that we in the West need. Like the Andean tradition, they don't do any talk. They're just like, let's just clear your energy field. There's no breath, there's no talk. So in the West, we need to adapt it. And the way I think of it is I need some guardrails on who you are. I think it's really easy for people with spiritual inclinations who haven't done their homework to just project wildly all over the place. And there's there are no guardrails in the spiritual tradition. You know, what I like about science is there's a certain level of exactness and certainty to it. And so what I found early on in my spiritual journeys and in working with healers and things of that nature is there's no checks or balances. And so I can just like oh, well, in a past life, you were, you know, Queen Victoria and and you thatted, and so let's take you that. And there's no way we can check that. There's no way that we can, you know, so, okay, so you worked through being Queen Victoria, but how is that affecting you today? And what I noticed is there are no checks and balances on that because that didn't happen in this lifetime. And two, I've watched 
clients get stuck in past life stories. Mm-hmm. Like you give them a story like that. And, it, you know, I used to track past life stuff. And I just realized like, it, I don't think that it completely serves the client. It, occasionally I'll go there with them if they need to go there. But I've watched people just wrap their mind around the story, mm-hmm. the past life story. And that's one more reason they're a victim. And, you know, like, and I'm like, oh, I did this person a disservice. Mm-hmm. So I decided to bring it into I want to stay in this lifetime. I want to stay in what you know. Let's get, you know, because that's when I saw people starting to really heal on my table. Um, And so the talking in the beginning, one creates rapport. And it also kind of gives me guardrails. I know who you are. I know what your situation was. I know what the dynamics of your life were a little bit and what we can get out in half an hour. And I feel like I stay truer to you and just don't wildly project, you know, crazy stuff on you. Is there any situation where someone is not a candidate for this work? Yeah, there are a lot of people that I, I just worked with a person recently that was really peeved that I was going to talk to her. She just wanted me to go in and fix her energetically. And I said, no, I work with you. I talk to you. You know, somebody who just wants to be fixed, I'm not going to be able to help you because I feel like we need to work together on that. It's your healing. You need to show up for it. There are people who are super in their intellect because of fear. And that's where my work can lead into suggesting psychedelic therapy. If people are super in their story and super in their intellect, they can't quite get to that in a 90-minute session. And they might need a longer session with someone doing psychedelic work. And there are various different psychedelics that you can do that will spend more time breaking down the default mode network and giving the person a longer access to that plate of it place of expansiveness. So then uh, rewind to teenage Christina who, you know, was reading Carlos Castaneda's books and experimenting with psychedelics in this Grateful Dead scene, etc. What did that look like? Did you, when you first, you know, was playing as a teenager with these substances, did you feel the expansiveness? Did you feel the power of the potential without it just being partying? Absolutely. I think that's where I first really had my, you know, spiritual awakening because I wasn't raised in any spiritual tradition. My parents were like, you figure it out. We have a lot of a lot of baggage with the spiritual traditions we were brought up in. You know, you you figure it out. And I lived in Alaska, a lot of Native American influence up there, and I just had this sense of I want to be an Indian when I grow up, <laughs> when I was a little bitty girl. And so when I moved to California and there was this whole psychedelic kind of hippie movement going on, there was this opening of connecting. And I think like the, it, there was this real spiritual awareness that awoken in me. And I remember in one Grateful Deb show in particular where I realized, oh, there's a group consciousness in here. Mm. Like everybody's consciousness is merging into one consciousness and it's it's interacting with the musicians and the musicians are playing to it, but it's playing to the musicians. And I started to go, oh, everything's connected. Everything is connected and we all share consciousness. Not only that, we're participating in each other's psyches in the degree that we will allow for it. And so what I noticed was it with the, because a lot of people in the Grateful Dead concerts do psychedelics. And so what I noticed was this sort of group consciousness and the music working together. And I was like, I, I gotta I gotta understand this. I gotta be able to use this. There was a sense of there's healing that comes from this. Interesting. And so when you then went to study with Alberto and you started to get into Andean shamanism, which as I've come to learn under you, is that it's, you know, in the Andes in the north, it's not the jungle, it's not a plant medicine, it's it's personal empowerment, it's people interaction. 
But when you were studying with him, were those substances you did it? Did these come back into your life personally? Not as a someone who holds space in psychedelic, because that's it's not what you're doing in the healing sessions. But did it come back to you, and, and did yeah. it contribute to your healing? Absolutely. When I was studying with Alberto, I took several trips to Peru, mm-hmm. and I went into the jungle and I did ayahuasca, and um, this was a long time ago. This was before everybody was all crazed about it, and it did change my life. I went into those sessions with intentions and and said, you know, show me how I can be the best healer I can be. And ayahuasca spoke to me and I we became friends. And so she's always working with me now, still in my in just my energy sessions. I always can call on her. I feel her presence. She's a vine and a, and, a, and leaves working together. Um and I, she will wind through a client. I can, you know, whistle and rattle and call her in. And so even just without psychedelics, she's, an, she's a consciousness that, that is available to work with. Interesting. So then yeah. when in the environment today, like as, you know, legislation is trying to push these things through and what's your view on the accessibility or the potential accessibility of substances such as, you know, psilocybin or MDMA or ayahuasca? That is so complicated because it's becoming really prevalent, right? It's all over the place. Everyone's doing psychedelics. I have an opinion on that on on two levels. One, it's being used for psychedelic therapy, which I think on some level is really good because what they're finding is it disrupts the default network. But what is happening in the psychedelic therapy venue or whatever format, paradigm, is it's a therapy session and it's... It's very much about the story or disrupting the default mode network and reformatting the brain. But where I'm going with this is there isn't a sense of it being ceremonial anymore. Mm -hmm. There isn't a sense of the metaphysics, although I think part of the healing comes from having a mystical experience. And so the shamanism, which is where all these things came from, is being lost in the therapeutic paradigm. And like the clinical, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, um delivery of these substances. Right. So that's one hand, but then on the other hand, everybody and their brother is doing ayahuasca ceremonies and I'm hearing so many horror stories about people, you know, forcing multiple cups here, have another cup and drive home, you know, abuse that happens by by ayahuasca to women, you know, just and not really getting really the, like I did the traditional versions in Peru and, you know, versions, sometimes they're more like even raves, you know, like just music playing and let's take ayahuasca. And it's, you know, everyone, you can't say what's right and what's wrong. It can be expressed in lots of different ways. But again, the seriousness of it as a healing material and methodology and spirit being that wants to help with healing gets lost when it becomes somewhat of a, a sort of a rave kind of, you know, experience. How how enlightened can I get to? People are wanting to just blow their minds and bust their egos up to get enlightened. Mm-hmm. And these substances weren't about getting enlightened. These substances were about healing. They were about helping people through the bardo planes, through the through the stuff that's unconscious so that they can heal. I think it's interesting too when, you know, and I want to talk about freeze because I feel like that is a place where you have where you hold people and notice and it's also like you've been literal witness and held me in my thawing over the past year and a half which again I don't know how I could ever repay you in any way um you know I've obviously spoken about my experience with psychedelic assisted therapy and in the same way as you said these substances are for healing you know I never done 
MDMA before. I'd never done psilocybin. I'd never touched a drug before. The only drug that I had touched was really alcohol and smoked some weed. And the way that these substances came to me were purely for healing and really opened my ego up, my brain up, my body up to moving through all of the trauma and then also bringing what was subconscious to the conscious so that I could start to thaw. So as an expert in freeze, um, can you explain what that is? <laughs> I don't know if I can say I'm an expert, but... I'll you are an expert. I will tell you how I, I understand it. Um, it. It's neurophysiological. When there's something scary that happens and we don't have the facility to face it, our nervous system, first of all, goes, oh, oh, hold the horse, Nellie. There's something going on here. And so we will start dumping adrenaline into our system, just everything to, to get ourselves ready to either run or fight. And then the third state is freeze. If we can't run and we can't fight, we go into freeze. And freeze, you still have all that adrenaline and cortisol running through your system, all the high emotions, but in freeze, you go into paralysis. It's kind of like the, the opossum playing dead. And it's not voluntary. You can't go, oh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick myself up and move now. You're just standing there like deer in the headlights, freight train coming at you, and all you can do is jump out of your body because your body's not going anywhere. And so your body goes through the trauma. And you dissociate. And sometimes you remember what happened, sometimes you don't. When that happens, one time, then your nervous system starts to go, okay, the world is not safe. Your default mode network starts to create a new story like, oh, your amygdala goes, your amygdala is the, the one that anticipates danger. It goes, you know, we better be on the ready for this. The world's not safe anymore. And so it gets, your amygdala gets a little trigger happy and it starts seeing danger anywhere and everywhere. And you start to dissociate. You start to not be able to stay in your body. The problem with that is you can't champion yourself. You can't use your body to say no. If you can't use your body to get out of the way, if you just go into freeze and can only be compliant or dissociate, more trauma happens. And then it just keeps happening and happening and happening. And then the secondary part of that is you start to hate yourself because you couldn't champion yourself and you let more stuff happen and you're weak and you're worthless and you have shame and you have guilt and, you know, it goes downhill from there. Yeah. And I mean, let me be someone who can speak to every single one of those emotions you've spoken about. And now that I understand and have sort of began and been uprooting these subconscious memories, you know, for the past two years, everything that you said is true. Like that self-hate, that compounding unsafe, that limited belief of not worthy of love, not being able to receive love, not trusting anybody. And personally, and I know that when I came to you, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of most, if not any of these things. And then more than anything, I wasn't aware of all of these feelings I was carrying. You know, the weight that I had been carrying of not worthy, you know, unsafe, because I had really built an ego as this fighter, as this almost, you know, successful entrepreneur, but led with physicality because it got me attention, but it was the attention that then got me hurt. And understanding this cycle, and I'm just even to the extent of like, yes, I've been working through this with you for almost two years, and I feel like I'm coming back to life in this rebirthing process. And it's really beautiful, even in my most recent experience, psychedelic-assisted experience, but 
this is so alive and well in me still that I was I was speaking with you earlier the other day about I was in the boxing gym on on Tuesday. And I have always worked out, I work out every single day in long sleeve shirts with my hair up. I make myself look unattractive because I don't want to be looked at. I want to be there because it's my therapy in a lot of ways, one of my therapies, and because it makes me feel good. But I don't want to be looked at. But I'm feeling in my life right now through this healing like I'm safer, I'm okay. So at the end of my session on Tuesday this past week, I put my hair down, so hot, sweated through like two long sleeve shirts. I'm in a sports bra and I'm just walking out, minding my own business, walking out. Hi, goodbye, whatever. And a man just comes straight in front of me and rubs his penis on me. Ew. And um, <laughs> I didn't realize, I didn't even realize it. I, I, It triggered my freeze response and I completely shut down. And in this freeze response, as you've discussed, for me, I was pretty much frozen my whole life since I was about six years old, right? And then as I've started to heal, I started thawing, and then I might be in freeze for two months or a month or a couple weeks. And I think as I've continued to heal, the time lapse has been shorter. So Tuesday, penis rubs up on me. I froze. I went to Whole Foods right after, and like I see, I feel like everyone's looking. I don't feel safe. And not even conscious, it's like, why are you looking at me like, there's perpetrators everywhere, but I'm okay because I'm strong and whatever else. Tuesday, Tuesday night, Wednesday. Still, there's something in me that's not right. I almost felt like I went into a manic episode of sorts, but not knowing. Thursday, two days after this man rubs up on him, I have to get a haircut. My hair is too long. I have to get a haircut. So I get a haircut. I'm in the chair, and I made it clear I just want to trim. But as the hairdresser's cutting my hair, he's talking. I'm not using my voice. I'm frozen. I'm not saying like, hey, remember I told you I don't want layers. I'm just sitting there like little girl Olivia who's been frozen her whole life, who's worked so hard in healing. And yet this presents itself to me again. It wasn't until I did a long psychedelic-assisted therapy at my home, guided, that the first thing that came up was you started spinning. You were so afraid. This man rubbed on you. You went, The first thing I knew what to do to, was make myself look different cut your hair off, cut some femininity off of you because you're not safe. And because I did, I was so upset about my hair. And then I was so upset, like, why didn't I say anything? I've come so far in this journey. Where's my voice? And it was just like, it was just like a rubber band snapped back in me. And so, yes, I'm proud of myself that I could thaw in two days or three days. But at the same time, this freeze response that you speak to, that you work people through, it's, it's scary. And it's scary because, you know, when I tell someone that he rubbed up on me, the first question is, well, did you say anything? And my response is like, I, I was frozen. I was frozen. That response that has happened that I've experienced so many times and then been a victim as a result of was just right at the surface. And when I told my boxing instructor, a woman, a couple of days later, she goes, that's the problem when I try to teach self-defense. You can't teach someone self-defense when they're frozen. Absolutely. That, and that is the, the problem with consent, too. Because if you go into freeze or a person goes into freeze when someone's coming at you sexually and you don't say no convincingly, it can sound like, not really, I don't, you know, let's... And so it, there's a lot of different things that happen and you, you just end up getting more attention. And, you know, the journey is to, I love that you're, you know, the time that you're in freeze is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And that's the idea is to be able to pop out of it sh sooner and sooner and sooner. And eventually to be able to be in real time and go, hey, 
fuck off, you know, or whatever right. it is that you need to say. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's enlightening to see that I've grown and that, yeah. you know, I've been, like I said, so grateful for you holding me in all of this. And at the same time, it's so scary to think like I'm a 36-year-old sovereign woman who's been boxing for decades, who has been doing all of this work, yet the other day, a man, not only did he think it was okay to rub on me, but that I just completely shut down. I was like going through a tunnel. And, um, and you know, I think about like women who shave their head or cut their hair off or desexualize themselves or make them look different ways because they don't feel safe, whether they know it consciously or not. And in my own story, you know, both that I've sexualized myself to get attention, but I didn't want that attention, but I froze. So I got that, you know, that happened, this victimhood. And at the same time, every day when I go out, you know, work out or whatever else, like I make myself look unattractive because I'm so afraid that somebody's going to hurt me. So that fear, it's, I think what contributes to the freeze, but keeps us in the space of not being fully empowered. Yeah, it's a conundrum because there's a mentality of entitlement that that some men have with their sexuality, and they do not seem to understand that it is something that comes from consent, or they do re- they do resent that to some degree. So there's all there's so much com- cultural complexity around that. But I think for men and women, I know men who have who've been traumatized and also blame themselves for things happening. There's a real need to be able to get into that real time moment, and it just it's the, it's just working that over and over again until you get into that place of being able to just not go into freeze because that tunnel you're talking about that you went into that sort of psychedelic space is dissociation, right? That's you leaving your body. And we have to be here to drive it. We have to be here to put those fists up. We have to be here to use that voice. We have to be here to engage it. And so that's the hard part is to just reprogram and reprogram and reprogram until we can get to where we can own it. And once you can own it and you have a few good experiences, then it starts to positively reinforce that. And I think back to it when you were speaking about your sessions when people come to you and you can usually, through some talking, try to feel out when these things are had happened or the stuckness that they're feeling, I think... Um, the sadness for me is that, you know, my whole life I've sort of been living in this space of needing to protect myself through my ego, feeling like a victim. And then the deeper that, you know, we've worked on more recently is just this deep feeling of unworthy that I'm not worthy of love. Because when you're victimized, you you blame yourself. You become that small shell of a person. And I think for you know, the sadness really like overwhelmingly as a society is that so many people live in that space forever. Yeah. And and the good news is most of this childhood stuff happens because we're small. But as adults, there are fewer occasions for these sorts of things, although they do still happen, obviously. But one of the important parts is growing up that little person inside of us so that they can step into the adult shoes and they can be the adult that we never had. They can be the adult that is the champion for ourselves because we tend to be looking for it outside ourselves still when we're in child mode. And so part of the integration process is to be able to, you know, decrease that time that we're in freeze, stay in our body, but also to step into the adult mode that can say, you know, that's that's not appropriate. 
even in a nice way, you don't have to say fuck off. In, in, in the more refined way, we say it with grace. We say it without, you know, without incurring any more violence or any more bad behavior. Just like, that's not working for me or that doesn't work. Please don't touch me. You know, whatever it is that needs to be said, just softly, quietly, but forcefully from that place of strength. And I think, you know, this show is called Everything You Need Is Inside. And it's been something that I've repeated for years and taught from, but without even knowing that I had anything inside lingering that didn't make me feel like I knew, you know? But with that, it's like learning to trust yourself, learning to trust your voice, learning to trust your power. And I think me continuing to speak that phrase, Everything You Need Is Inside, was me the continuum reminder of like, you can trust yourself, you know best, as opposed to seeking answers outside of self, which I don't know that gets, you know, enough notoriety, like how deep these traumas run, these moments in time that keep us stuck in these places. So the work that you're doing is actually saving lives. And then in the way that you work, you know, in tandem or a supplement to like your work, energetic healing, just through energy work, you know, I want to step back into this idea of the use of psychedelics. How do they contribute to freeze or to eliminating that energetically? There's been a lot of research done on psychedelics and how they affect PTSD, which is what, you know, what we're talking about, really, and the default mode network. So MDMA has been shown to be very effective in resetting the default mode, all of them affect the default no mode network. All of them turn off the default mode network, which then allows for more expansive. Different substances add different things. MDMA isn't particularly psychedelic, although it's they're, they're putting it in the psychedelic category. What it does is it creates this big warm feeling where you feel safe addressing all the stuff that you had blotted out. From your mode, your internal story. So the way I like to think of it is your ego is sort of a ball within a bigger ball. And when you take psychedelics, your ego, which is your story, your default mode network, has to expand into your full consciousness of your soul, of your energy field. Your energy field carries all that information. And so as it's expanding into that, all the unconscious stuff that you need to deal with comes up. And so with MDMA, you see a lot of shaking, a lot of letting go. I've seen some serious... Um, repressed memories come through. And so each one, each one of these substances has different, you know, sort of profiles. Mushrooms tend to, they tend to invite the shadow more, whereas the MDMA is more of a feel good, your intellect's still in check, but it's feeling more adventurous in exploring itself. Once you start to move into the true psychedelics like mushrooms or LSD, or ayahuasca, then your shadow self starts to be available to you, which is the scarier part because it's in shadow. You put it in the unconscious. Thank you very much. And so what I know about these medicines is they tend to invite your personality profile to come up and express itself and to show itself so that you can see what you're doing. And you can see sometimes where it comes from. And sometimes I, you know, like I know of people who've been in these sessions that loop into their story about the world in their medicine session. For example, if they feel like, oh, you know, things never work out for me and I'm a failure, they'll make their psychedelic session, oh, things aren't working, I'm a failure, it's not happening. And so they're, they're bringing their story into their psychedelic session and thinking it's the truth when in fact it's being shown to them, this is what you do. 
This is your story. This is this is your rat maze. You are running on this rat maze. And if you're not, if you don't have guidance, you will just get stuck in like, oh, I'm in that story again. Oh my God, I can never get away from this. But if you have guidance, you can, if someone can feed back to you, then they can go, this is your thing. This is your rat loop. This is your habitat. This is your maze. Like this is what you do. And I think that's, you know, leads into the idea of integration back into whether I do it on my yoga mat and feel my hands or my belly to my spine, but really integration is the work. It's not the session itself. It's what happens in between. It's how you take these lessons from these sessions and make them a part of your everyday life, both the trauma and the healing. And I know that you do integration sessions just talk therapy-ish and with energy healing and being able to have that conversation with somebody who can spit it back at me and say, well, actually, what if we look at it, you know, as opposed to how you're thinking about it, your ego, that playing and and what it, it really is so that you can break it down, dissect it, and then make yourself whole again. That's- yeah. And remap your story, right? You know, reframe your story, re- rewrite your story, right? There's this great pillar on, on one of the pedestrian walkways down over the, the river in, in downtown Austin. And it says, Write your best story or mm. live your best story. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I know exactly where it is. Yeah. Or under the bridge. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's interesting too because, you know, in my last integration session with you, I came in and I was hysterical, you know, because I'm, I'm sort of rounding out this and I feel myself growing and expanding and becoming whole again in so many ways. But full transparency, I came and I was hysterical and I was like, everything is burning and I don't know. And you're like, you're exactly where you're meant to be. This is when you get to decide who you are. And I think the misfortune, the one in millions of trauma is that if you experience trauma young, it takes that sovereignty from you that you don't actually know who you are because your guardrails are always on. You know, I've felt like my whole life, my heart has been in a cage. My body has been locked up. And as you said, MDMA has been unbelievable for me in starting to thaw that freeze so that I can feel again. So, to come to you and you look at me and say, this is where you are meant to be, you get to decide now, is it's an unbelievable place to be. And I would not be here without you. Mm, thank you. I would you. not be here I appreciate you. your courage. You oh. have to have courage to do this. Yeah. A lot of people would rather just stay in their habitat. Yeah. Um, so with that said, we have to wrap this one. But I feel like there's so much here. And for my last question quickly, this, again, catchphrase, everything you need is inside. What does that mean to you? Well, what it means to me goes back to the Andean tradition of we all have this spirit, this individual spirit inside of us called the Inca seed. Each one is different. Each one is completely individual. And it is everything we need. It's exactly who we are. And it comes here to be expressed in human form. And we get knocked off course and expressing it from all the trauma and all the this and the that. But those things also create the strengths that we're going to use to express it. So there's this sort of integration that comes from, okay, what are the gifts I can take from my trauma to bring my Inca seed to full capacity, to full blossom of as a tree or as, you know, whatever it is it's going to be. So it's completely in parallel with the Andean tradition in that sense. (laughs) (laughs) Synchronicity. Thank you so, so much. You are welcome. It's been such a pleasure to watch you grow and and to see your courage and to see you show up for it over and over and over again. Thank you. I Like I said, I don't know that I would have been able to do it without you. It means that much to me. Thank you. 